Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please be advised that Little Miss Recap contains adult language. everyone, welcome to Little Miss Recap. My name's Amy Archer. What you're about to hear is an interview that I did with filmmaker Cynthia Hill and Stephen Pandos. If those names don't ring a bell, you need to go back and listen to our episode of the docuseries Burden of Proof that was on HBO Max earlier in 2023. I think it dropped in June. I covered this on uh, on our show with Amanda, and we just became obsessed with this case. There's so many twists and turns. And really, the core of the case is that Jennifer Pandos goes missing. She's 15. It's 1987. She either leaves or someone lures her out of her teenage bedroom, never to be seen again. And her brother, Stephen, who was away at college at the time, came to believe through a series of events that his parents might actually be involved in this. And the story that is told that unfolds in the documentary, uh, the docuseries Burden of Proof, is the story of Stephen's relationship to and with his parents. And it is a gripping story, and it's beautifully told by filmmaker Cynthia Hill. And when we covered this, we had a lot of theories There's a lot of twists and turns, and to this day, the case remains unsolved. So I hope you enjoyed the interview, and if you want to go back and listen to our coverage of Burden of Proof, I think it dropped in like June of 2023, so you might find it on our feed there. As always, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi everyone, it's Amy Archer and I'm here today with filmmaker Cynthia Hill and Stephen Pandos from HBO Max's Burden of Proof. Thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, so Stephen, my question for you, just to jump right in, if we can, okay. is did you approach Cynthia with this idea and how did the, the docuseries come to be made? 
yeah. So, you know, this started, you know, uh, obviously, you know, a number of years ago um, when I was in the midst of all this stuff with my parents about my sister and when, you know, people were, you know, pointing the fingers at my parents, you know, I just thought of this as about trauma and a trauma bond and how how complicated it is and how difficult it is to explain um, and thought that the story around my sister you know gave that context so I had reached out to Cynthia um, about it you know sort of as that being the the reason for it mm -hmm. um, and then it just morphed into something else and Cynthia, when Stephen reached out to you, what was it about this story that really grabbed your attention as a filmmaker? Um, I think for me, just primarily, it's like the story of this this young girl that goes missing and is never heard from again. And the idea that Stephen is under the impression that his parents may have had something to do with her disappearance and the fallout of that on a family was really intriguing to me. One of the the parts I loved so much was the introduction. When you're talking about Jennifer, and I want to talk a little bit about Jennifer here. And the way that it's shown in the documentary is she's riding a bike. And we have voiceover of somebody saying, oh, she would ride her bike around the development. And somebody else would say, oh, I think she used to walk. And then you see the, the memory change to her walking. And it just... I loved how it really spoke to like the fragility of, of memory and the fleetingness of memory. Um, yeah. Was that, were you, were you coming across different stories and different versions of Jennifer before we get to Steven's memories of Jennifer, just through a filmmaker, when you were interviewing people, were you hearing that kind of fleetingness of memory and, and changing of minds? Sure. I mean, that's the reason where, why we, landed where we did, you know, wanted the audience to start watching this whole series with the idea that one memory is unreliable. And do you really know someone? And so I think, um, you know, for me as a filmmaker, I wanted the viewer to know upfront that we were not trying to tell you exactly for certain who this person was and what happened because we honestly don't know but it um it just i think it it allowed us to have a lot of um freedom to tell this story the way that it needed to be told i think yeah i think that's that's one of the things that people who have watched the documentary that's something that resonates with people including myself is the way that you frame this we went through all the twists and turns with steven as he went through them and i don't know i'm assuming that was deliberate i'm a writer and i know everything i do is deliberate um but but i just think you know you lay out a theory in episode one, you're like, oh, I know this person did it. And then there's a twist in episode two. You're like, oh, I think this person did it. Amy, I think I, I'm really appreciate that you picked up on you know, this journey that we were on with Steven. And what we ultimately wanted to do was to give the audience the same experience that we were all on, which we were there for the twists and turns. 
this genre, the crime doc genre, frequently for me is is one that I'm not a huge fan of because mm-hmm. I know when I start watching one of these series or films that the filmmaker knew how it ends when they started making it. Yeah. And so I know that in the back of my head. So I feel manipulated all the way throughout it. And so for this one, we had no idea when we started where we were going. And I think the beauty of what we were able to accomplish is the audience also experiences that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think that's what sets it apart. Absolutely. In my mind, Stephen, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jennifer? You know, this, this beautiful 15 year old girl who wakes up February 9th or goes to bed February 9th, 19, is it 87? Yes. Yeah. And is never seen or heard from again. So, you know, your only sibling, right? Your only sister. That's right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who she was, what you remember about her? Right. Uh, you know, what I remember of, you know, Jennifer is, you know, one, you know, she was very smart, um, much smarter than me. Um, <laughs> she had, you know, a, a variety of friends, right, from, you know, all across the spectrum. Um, and that she was a fighter, mm. um, and you know she wouldn't she wouldn't back down from a fight against anybody, um, and she was you know passionate about you know about those things. Um, you know that's what I remember most. Yeah, and I think um, you know you do do a good job of of keeping her memory because I felt like by the end of the series, I really had a sense of who she was. And I'm, I'm, so she was 15 in 1987 and I was 10 in 19, in 1987. So I feel like I'm in that age range with her. And I just really related to like that Gen X mindset, which we'll, we'll get into because I have a whole Gen X thing I'm going to go on. <laughs> um, so let me see. How did the news of Jennifer's disappearance reach you? So you were at college. I was in college, right? um, and I got a phone call from my mother, um, or, I mean, that she called me, I might have called her, but um, mm-hmm. in any respect, you know, I was on the phone, and my mother, you know, asked me if I'd seen Jennifer, because uh, my grandparents, you know, lived about 30 minutes or 45 minutes away from where I went to school, and okay. uh, there was, you know, the thought that she might have been on her way to my grandparents' house, Um somehow and that she might have stopped off you know to see me was this something that she had ever done before run away or leave home not that i recall okay yeah so was that conversation with your mother right after like was it february 10th 11th or we're not Uh, sure i I don't i can't really remember you know specifically i think it might have been a few days after but i Mm -hmm. couldn't tell you for sure Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the people that we meet throughout the documentary. And then I'm really interested to know how, what the journey was that brought you to this place where you landed on my mother, my father might be culpable here. Do you feel that it was like, did you have that theory right away? Or do you feel like it was something that you were led to by the investigation? Uh, It was nothing that I ever thought of the thought never entered my mind until uh law enforcement suggested it 
And was that in 2006 when the case was reopened or did they have those theories originally? No, that would have been in 2009. Oh, 2009. Okay. That was uh, when, you know, when Wendy Reed, you know, had came to, to talk to my mother and when my mother, you know, produced the note, mm -hmm. um, it was, it was right that. So it was early 2009. Um, Cynthia, you had a challenging job to portray Margie and Ron as, as objectively as you could, right? And to sort of show the audience one side of Margie that the police saw and one side of Margie that Stephen saw and one side of Margie that, you know, is the truth. So what was your journey in filming her? Like when you first met her, did you think, huh, Stephen might have something here, or I could see, you know, where this is lining up, and then where did you land eventually? Well, the first time I met Margie was when we showed up on her doorstep, and Stephen had made um, an introduction for us to come and speak with her. And I had assumed that she knew that we wanted to film her. And so I show up with cameras and, um, you know, two extra people who are crew and, and, uh, I knock on the door and basically Margie's like, Oh, hell no. <laughs> and so she's like, I'm willing to talk to you, but I am never going on camera to discuss this. And so I just asked to speak to her just to get, get a better understanding of her perspective. And so we spent a couple of hours in her living room um, trying to understand her point of view and also um, just getting some additional background information. Mm -hmm. And she told me in that initial conversation that um, I was not entitled to her pain. And that mm -hmm. is something I will never forget is that sentiment of like, this pain is hers. And yeah. Um, and that is something for me as a filmmaker, like trying to remember that everybody that we're working with, they all are invested in their, their, their own stories, their lives. And, and me feeling like I'm entitled to their perspective. I'm not, you know, so it right. is, it's gotta be something that they are willing freely to, to share. And so eventually after having, you know, a long conversation, she said, go have lunch and I will make a decision as to whether or not I will participate. And we came back and she agreed. And the reason she agreed is because she wanted to do this for Steven. And I, I think just because knowing that and that she was willing to open herself up in this way and um, have that pain become the forefront of her brain and not push to the back as where it had been made me really sympathize with her in a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. And it made me question a little bit about what the assumptions were about her. And so, um, you know, I started out with just really wanting to be open to her and, and her story and, and wanting to hear it all from her perspective. I, I think that, Stephen, at times your frustration with your mother's, I, I wouldn't call it an unwillingness, but inability maybe to be open about this topic. 
we could feel your frustration and that came through in the documentary you know the audience we were right there with you like why aren't you just saying this how how did you get past that like why do you think she was so closed and so unable to to give you the answers that that you were need and i'm talking about not the answer of yes we were involved in this cuz right. we know that's probably not true but the answers of you know what happened that night what 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 was going on in the home and things like that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think maybe she just, you know, kind of compartmentalized it and, you know, put it away and, you know, didn't want to go back there um, because it was, you know, pain. It's painful. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the, the turning points I had, I had been saying all along that, Every single hurdle you put in front of your mother, she jumped through. Every hoop you put through, she jumped oh, through. Oh, she did. Absolutely. She did everything. And, and to me, from the beginning of the, the docuseries, that was what I held on to. I kept thinking, if this woman has any knowledge or is involved in some way, she's not going to agree to a lie detector test, agree to be hypnotized on TV, agree to all these interviews. Agree, you know what I mean? I just felt like she really showed up for you through her actions. And I thought that was really interesting. And the minute that I really, I mean, I felt for her, I have two teenage daughters myself. I felt for her the entire time, but the time I think I saw the most genuine emotional reaction from her was when you guys brought in that woman who was supposed to be like the human lie detector. Elena. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And she, and your mother described the last moment that she saw Jennifer and she said, like, that image was burned in her mind, that that was the last time she saw her. And I just thought, wow. And to, to, to have that come in episode three, I think it was in episode three, if I'm my memory's right. Was it, Cynthia? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Like, to have it hit you then, and you're like, okay, so now we're on this ride. And it was really, you know, an interesting um, perspective to have. So... The original case file. Like, what was mm -hmm. the story with that? Because I got the impression through the docuseries that Wendy believed it had maybe been there all along. There's no way it would have been overlooked three times when they did the search in the evidence room. And that really was a large part of your case against your parents, was that your mother was producing this evidence that should have been in an original case file. So right. where was it coming from? So what do we think happened there? I don't think, we still don't know. We yeah, never right. got a, a clear answer to that. And I think for the police department, it's a huge frustration for them, especially, you know, Wendy, who was trying to rebuild that case file and going down a path that was not the right path because she didn't have the initial information. And I know because we read her, her case file notes and uh, while she was rebuilding a case file that she did speak to the original investigator and they did inform her that they had taken this information. So she was not, she was operating off of um, their poor memory about what happened mm -hmm. in 1987 as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting, too, when we get to the part where we talk about lie detector tests. And uh, Stephen, your lawyer, who I'm calling the very friendly Mr. Burns, I called him in our coverage, um, he 
he said, you know, sometimes lie detector tests are inadmissible or not accurate. They're inadmissible, obviously, but not accurate because people like have trouble remembering things. So it sometimes confuses confusion for deception. And I thought that was interesting because that was another big part of your issue with your parents, right? Is you were told that your mother was deceptive on a lie detector test. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. And it wasn't just my mother. It was, you know, my father too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, this was, you know, the secret service that was, you know, giving the lie detector test, you know, they and the FBI give the best polygraphs of anyone. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I never, I don't recall meeting anybody from the secret service, but I remember taking my mother, you know, to their office, um, and, you know, sitting in the, the lobby of the secret service office here in Charlotte for like five or six hours, you know, waiting mm-hmm. for my mom until I, I, I had to go pick up my daughter. So, you know, I left, but I, I, I sat there forever. And was it during the lie detector test of your father that he said that he had been involved and knew where Jennifer was and he would take them to her That's body? Right. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he said that? No telling. There's okay. no, um, you know, maybe he was just, you know, tired at the end of a long, you know, I, I don't know. There's no way, there's no way to, for me to speculate what goes through my father's head. Um, Are you in contact with your father today? No. No. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned. Little Miss Recap will be right back after these words. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cynthia, was Ron an easy subject to work with? Was he willing? Because he seemed pretty willing to talk to you guys, but was that just for the cameras or? No, he he was pretty open to the idea. And I was, you know, obviously I am not sure what we're going to find when we get in front of people, but um, I was very pleased that he agreed to allow mm-hmm. us to, to come to interview him. And then when we got there, he seemed pretty open to all the questioning, but you know, that first trip that we went on, you know, we were definitely under the assumption that um, the theories that the police had about him were probably accurate. And so Mm. there was a good bit of 
maybe fear <laughs> yeah. uh, to go out there. And we had gotten actual warnings from the police department um, to you know be careful. And so, you know, for our own safety and we weren't really sure what we would find, but he was always very kind and his wife was very kind and considerate. They'd always make you know, food for us while we were there. And by the next time and then the subsequent times we've been there we've like gone out to eat and so like mm -hmm. it's it's like a very different experience from the very first time that we showed up once you get to know someone and no longer think that they are actually a murderer so. i i did feel um that even though most of the evidence pointed at him that you did do a good job creating empathy for him because i did i did have empathy for him especially when we learned about his clearly untreated PTSD and all he had been through, you know, in the war. And I don't, I, I, I did have empathy for him. Like I, I understood Stephen's frustrations, of course, but yeah. I, I had a little bit of, and I have empathy for him as a parent, as somebody who, you know, whose child is missing. So yeah. I thought that was, that was really, you walked a fine line there and I thought that was really interesting. And I think also once you find out what he was saying and what Margie was saying, was actually the truth about what happened in 1987 with their mm -hmm. efforts to uh, reach out to police and you know, put up posters and things like that, that it does change the way that you, you perceive someone when you realize that they were not telling a lie about those things. Yeah. And, and I will say that um, there, there is, you know, that pivotal moment where we, we learn that, uh, Margie was not taking calls from Wendy and not returning her calls. And instead she was emailing Ron and you can see a basis for their distrust of the investigators. If they were being honest and were being told, no, you're not being honest and, and really kind of being not berated or harassed, but just being treated in a certain way by police that they, they were nervous about it. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you picked up on that because there's a lot of things in the film that we don't necessarily um, spoon feed you like mm -hmm. how to how to take it. Yeah, and most things we don't, you know. So we let the audience make up their own mind. But you know that exchange between the two of them looks super suspicious when you first uh, read it with the the theory that the police have in place. You know, so. And then when you, you read that exchange with knowing everything that you know at that moment, you know, years down the road, it plays out in a very different way. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move into theories, if we, if we can, for one second. I wanted to talk about the note. So the note is, I think, and I think Donnie said this, if you figure out who wrote the note, you figure out what happened. Do you guys still believe that? I think that's a pretty good assumption to make. Yeah. So, Stephen, who do you think wrote the note? Um, like speculation has led to a, a lot of heartache. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't want well, to say, you know, sort of kind of like what I think. And I'm, I'm there with Stephen where we don't like to speculate on sure, like sure. that, but it, I do believe that, you know, whoever wrote the note has more information about what happened to her. It doesn't mean who 
ever wrote the note is responsible for maybe her disappearance or her demise. Right. But, but they know something. Yeah, it feels like that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that, you know, again, as I think if we could confirm who wrote the note, and um, that would go a long way. Yeah, I think it's it's important to to state that again. Like the police are not saying whoever wrote the note murdered somebody or is responsible, but the person who wrote the note was present and has information. I want to talk about something that Donnie said that really hung me up. He was saying, Stephen, that the problem with where you lived was that you were a mile from the road. Is that correct? Like if somebody were to walk to your house, that it would be quite a hike through the woods? Yeah. I mean, if they weren't in a car, if they were on foot, yeah, from the main road to kind of get around the gate. Yeah. And he was saying that it was cold. It was like 27 degrees. That's right. And he, and I, I said on the podcast, I'm like, does he know teenagers? Like in, in our childhood, in, in the eighties, in the nineties, we absolutely would have walked 16 miles in 27 degree weather to meet up with a boyfriend or girlfriend, to go drink in the woods, to go do something nefarious in the woods. Like this was a very common thing. Do you feel that that is accurate, that a teenager would not do that? Oh, no, I think a teenager would absolutely do that. So that's why I felt like, you know, maybe it is possible that the person did not have a car. Now, were you able to get phone records from that night? Uh, No, they didn't have them then because the police didn't get them you know at the time in the 80s and yeah you know they kind of kind of forgot about it and then by the time they went back none of those records existed anymore but we do know that nobody called through the front gate right yeah i'm pretty sure that that they would have checked that that nobody nobody came through the gate and at the there there are two gates to get into king's mill but at, Mm -hmm. at that time in 1980s there was only one gate that was open 24 hours, um, and they didn't come do that. Okay. So most likely, a lot of the evidence points to somebody being on foot. Yeah, yeah. Either Jennifer leaving or somebody being on foot and coming to your home. That's right. So let me ask you about, and I mean, this does not come up until episode four, which is a wild twist. Mm-hmm. This box of notes that your mom mm-hmm. had. There's a note that um, Jake talks about in particular, which is a note that Jennifer wrote. And and this is where, you know, I sort of need some clarification. I believe the date on the note said February 9th. The note I'm referring to is the one that Jennifer wrote to Tony that said, like, I'll make you pay or I'm going to do you a big favor, you know, mm-hmm. to indicate definitely that there was something going on there. Um sure. Just for clarity, that was yeah. not in that box of notes. That was a note that was in the original case file. Okay. That they discovered um, whenever they found the case file, the missing case file. So did to- did Tony see that note? Do we know? Because we couldn't figure out. We were trying to put the timeline together of when she wrote it and if he would have seen it. We don't have confirmation on that at all. So... Just because it's addressed to him does not mean that he actually saw it. Right, because I believe there it was time, she wrote the time on it, right? And it was p.m. Yeah. So ch- chances are she might not have ever gotten it to him. There, Yes, that mm-hmm. is. Which I don't true. know if that's necessarily important, whether he saw it or not, because it just does give us a window into her mind, right? 
Well, that I think is fair to say that we know where her, what she's thinking about and, um, you know, her state of mind at that time, Uh, you know, whether or not the person that it was written to, if they participated in, you know, the exchange in any way, or if they read it, we, we don't have any knowledge of that. Hmm. Um, Stephen, do you believe that there is a world in which Jennifer left on her own? No. Um, you know, as in left, like ran away. Yeah. Left, without taking anything as a 15 year old girl. I mean, you have daughters, would they run away from home and not take anything? My kids won't even walk from the car to the house if it's dark out. So they're not going to run away. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, there's just, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's going to run away from home and not take anything. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I agree. She- Cynthia, do you think that there's a world in which she leaves on her own? I think that Jennifer was a very independent young lady, you know, as 15 year olds go this as of today, like I have a 15 year old currently mm-hmm. and mine would not run away, mm-hmm. but you know, I do think she was very independent, but I think that to run away and not take anything mm-hmm. is, um, and to never have been heard from again I think all points to the likelihood that that scenario just did not happen. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think to, to really kind of understand this case or to come up with some kind of plausible theory, you really have to understand what it was like to be a young woman at that time and the parenting style of our parents I mean, when I was 15 years old, I had a whole separate life that my parents knew nothing about. My mother, I'm 47. She knows more about me today than she did when I was 15, 100%. And I I do think it's very possible that Margie was not a bad mother. She just was an average mother of a Gen Xer. And that's just how parenting was then. Like they just were not involved in our lives. So the to to for Jennifer to be having this relationship with Tony to you know have gotten pregnant, have had to get an abortion, you know, fighting with him about Corey, what like I believe all of that is 100% under like Margie has no idea about it until or unless Jennifer lets her know what she wants her to know. I do want to talk about one moment that was really interesting to me and that was when we met Charlie May with his Trump hat and his I Saved Kids from Cancer Hershey, Pennsylvania shirt, which was fantastic. Um, so, Cynthia, what led you to go down to Florida to interview Charlie May? Well, the first that we, the first time we heard his name was through Stephen's dad, Ron. And, mm-hmm. sorry, he mentioned Charlie's name because he was asked whether or not he knew him by um, Jake. And so, you know, so we're always looking for these clues as to what maybe the police are up to because they were now not keeping us in, they weren't keeping us up to date. Mm-hmm. You know, they were keeping us at arm's length at this moment because the case was active and mm-hmm. they, you know, didn't want to jeopardize what they were doing by somehow inadvertently letting us know something. But, you know, that piece of information was enough mm-hmm. for us to go down this rabbit hole and then start investigating who this, this character could possibly be. 
And so we ended up finding this individual and um, it was, it took a long time. It took a good amount of time for us to find him though. You know, so you have to triangulate all these different factors, like what age he possibly could be. And Mm -hmm. we knew that he, he was missing an arm. So that was something that helped was a good identifier. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, he was at one time living near Williamsburg, Virginia. So we were able to locate somebody that was uh, related to him at one time on Facebook. And then through those channels and other channels and hiring a private investigator in Florida, we were able to find him. Now, did you find him? Cause I know there was not a disagreement, but I think you and Steven had some, some differing views on whether or not he was credible and the information that he gave was usable. What was your impression of it? mine Mm -hmm. um i mean you've got this homeless man who is giving you this tale about acid in a barrel and you know i think that any person would think wait a minute is that even possible so i wouldn't necessarily say that i i don't think he's credible but i do think it's it's you have to you have to question everything. I'm questioning everyone else. So why would yeah. I not question him? And Stephen, we saw the scene where you met him. Yeah. And um, what was your impression? Uh, you know, like Charlie clearly has his, you know, his issues, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, as Cynthia said, you have to, you know, kind of question everybody. Um, you know, I don't know that Charlie has, you know, any reason to, you know, to lie clearly mm-hmm. um and you know his his story is relatively consistent so another interesting part was when the secret grand jury convened and i felt like we saw it on camera and i felt like steven learned about it later did you not tell him at the time and was what was the decision behind that we did not tell him at the time, which that's uh, something as a filmmaker and then also somebody who is, I, I would consider Stephen a friend now. Mm-hmm. And so we've gone on this journey together. And so not telling him that piece of information was a decision that we made as a team because we didn't know what it meant. We right. also knew that we weren't supposed to know about it. And so we wanted time to try to investigate it on our own to confirm the things that we maybe thought or who was there, who was not there. And we also wanted time to find Charlie May. And so Mm. that runway gave us time for all of that. And it also gave the police the opportunity to come to Stephen and tell them themselves. And so that information was not coming from us. It did come from the police. And so that also, I think, helped us with like our relationship with the police that we're not out there telling Stephen things that we're not really sure about. Right. So to make their investigation more difficult. But yeah, it was a really hard decision for us as a team. And I lost a lot of sleep over not sharing that when we knew it. Yeah, I bet. Because I feel, Stephen, like we kind of saw the frustration on your face when you found out about that. Because I do feel, and tell me if I'm wrong, that 
that seemed to be the turning point for you with your mother. Like that seemed to be the last thing that you needed to hear was, okay, there is definitely, the police definitely are looking in this direction and that means they're not looking at my mother. Am I wrong? Did I, was there something else that you think maybe was the turning point? Um, No, I think that's, you know, certainly like the event, you know, right. That you can point to as, you know, uh, as a turning point. Um, Yeah, for sure. Just knowing how cautious like law enforcement is and, um, and the Commonwealth attorney, you know, they're not going to do the whole grand jury thing, much less a special grand jury, um, you know, for no reason or for, for a little reason. Um, So, and what was, I believe maybe we talked about this um, over email, but what was the, what precipitated them getting that grand jury convened? Was it the handwriting? I forget what it was. Uh, no, this was, that was before the handwriting. Um, I guess it was just Charlie May's Charlie's okay. testimony uh, or, you know, statement or whatever. Um mm-hmm. And they wanted to probably get it in the record. I found with Tony, and I mean, it was brilliant that you had Tony and Corey talking about this in the documentary and him really downplaying their relationship. And then all this evidence comes out that contradicts everything that he's saying. And he's, you know, sort of like, oh, we were teenagers. And and I have no doubt that he feels that way now, looking back on it, like, oh, we were just teenagers. But their relationship was much deeper, much more intense than he was playing it off. So, Cynthia, like, you did you have that knowledge already when you were talking to them? No. When we met with them early, early on, this was one of, you know, some of the initial interviews that we did. We were in the process of just really trying to get to know Jennifer. We knew that at the time when we interviewed him, we did know that they dated. Mm-hmm. And we did know that she had had an abortion, mm-hmm. but I did not know if Corey had that information. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wasn't really sure if that was what may have been, had led him to downplay the relationship. So those are the things that we were thinking during that initial interview. But, you know, at the time we're still making a film in my from my perspective, that's about Jennifer, she's missing, who's Jennifer, and the idea that her parents likely had something to do with her disappearance. And so we weren't actively investigating this for other suspects necessarily. Was there ever a time when they were reticent to speak with you or pulled out or would not talk to you anymore? Or were they cooperative through the whole doc? Who are you referring to? Um, Tony and Corey. We did reach out to Tony at the end before the series was released um, to see if he would speak with us again. And he, um, he, he said no. Okay. Um, Steven. One of the most touching parts of the documentary, obviously, is when you reunite with your mother. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the most beautiful things was when Cynthia asked her, like, what does, does Stephen have to apologize to you? And she said, no, he just has to walk through the door 
And I just thought that was so beautiful. And the fact that, you know, you didn't have that filmed or mic'd up that initial meeting when you went with her. What was that like for you? What was that like to go to her and finally be able to say, I know you didn't do this. Um, look, you know, as I said in the film, it's like, you know, everybody needs your mom. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and same applies to me. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's great. You know, um, you know, I saw my mom last weekend. She saw her granddaughter, you know, the day after on, uh, you know, we're, we're coming together. So that's good. That's great. And you have two daughters, correct? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they both have a relationship with her now? They do. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. How long was it when they didn't have a relationship with her? Or or were, were they seeing her sort of here and there? Or was it just, you know, nothing? Um, no, I mean, you know, they did, you know, and then when all this you know, started with, um, with, with Jennifer's case and what the police were saying, then, you know, I, it, it was just too hard for me. Right. It was, um, I just felt like I, you know, at the time believing that, you know, that my parents were, you know, involved, um, you know, I just couldn't go along with that charade. Right. I couldn't, um, I couldn't participate and just pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so, you know, when I kind of, you know, cut things off with my mom, you know, I didn't do it. Like I just didn't walk in the door and say, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. This we I talked about this with her for, a long time before I got to that point. Right. Well, I'm really glad that you're back together and you're working towards healing yeah. because it's, I mean, I, I worked for two years. I interviewed parents who lost children in school shootings and to understand the damage that this does to a family. And now we see it through a missing person, right? Through somebody you have no answers Right. And that is, Cynthia, it was a, a beautiful and rich and deep portrayal of what happens to a family when this kind of, of... Yeah, it's a lot of collateral damage. Yep. When this kind of tragedy occurs, it's really... It was it was really an interesting story. And, and Stephen, thank you so much for sharing it with us, you know. And, and I think we need to remember that this is Jennifer's story. And, you know, I really want to know what people should do if they have any information or they know anything from this time is the investigation still active where does it stand today yeah it's still active and if anybody knows anything they should call you know james city county police department uh Mm -hmm. and ask for you know jake wright or rich pennycuff and and talk to them that's the absolute thing that they should do Absolutely. And in the meantime, we're still hopeful that you get some answers. And and again, just thank you so much for sharing this with us. It was, it, it, I, I don't want to say it was entertaining because that sounds so shallow, but it was, it really just was so thought provoking in, in terms of grief and loss and the complicated relationships in, in between parents and children. So thank you so much. And I want to give a shout out to your wife because she was so supportive and 
she just really was like, I'm walking this walk with him. I'm, you know, I'm going through this with him. But we could also tell like she was concerned for you and worried for you and, you know, probably frustrated at times. And she just, um, I, I, I just don't want to let the whole episode go without saying something about Karen. Yeah, yes. and, yeah Karen's been, uh, you know, terrific. And, yeah. you know, she gave me the space, you know, to do this um, and, you know, experience it and digest it. Um, and she's been very supportive, you know, through it all, for sure. Yeah, she's great. And Cynthia, thank you so much for for your artistic lens, for, you know, following this story and for taking it up. I think it's really important and you did a beautiful job with it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And but thank I, you guys so yeah. much for talking with me. What's next for you, Cynthia? What are you working on? <laughs> <laughs> um, I hate that question as a writer, so I'm going to give it to you as a filmmaker. <laughs> When's the next uh, book coming? I have been filming Bigfoot Hunters in the Ozarks for the last year. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> another, another unsolvable mystery. Mm -hmm. <laughs> another thing that will drive us crazy and keep us up at night. Great. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate right. it. Thanks, Sammy. Thank um, you. Okay. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider listening to a few more that we've done. We cover a lot of reality TV, but we also covered some scripted stuff and we do a lot of documentaries. So subscribe, share, and give us a five-star review if you feel inclined. Thanks so much and we'll see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.